This is Liam Hendricks, and you're watching Crosstown Crosstalk on the Barroom Network. Some may find the following disturbing. Discretion is advised. Every summer in Chicago, the sunshine spotlights the city's spectacular skyline, its luxurious lakeshore, marvelous monuments, and the over 200 neighborhoods in the city. And it also brings to light two of the greatest sports franchises in the world. On the north side, it's the Cubs. On the south side, it's the White Sox. This is Crosstown Crosstown. Hello and welcome to another very exciting episode of Crosstown Crosstalk presented by the Barroom Network. My name is Vinny Parisi and I'm sitting here watching the playoffs day after day in Major League Baseball. So and so and more and more depressed that the Chicago White Sox failed to live up to be one of these teams this season. And every single day, I think about what could have been if they would have won this game. How would that have changed things? If they won that game, how would this have been affected? But now we move forward. There are a couple big stories surrounding the White Sox all season long. There are a couple big stories surrounding the Cubs all season long. All off season long, I guess I should say. One of the biggest ones, though, outside of who's going to be the next manager of the White Sox, is what is going to happen with Jose Abreu. He has been one of the greatest players in the history of the Chicago White Sox. That is very fair to say at this point. This team was loaded with history and great players and great players at that position on first base. Nonetheless, three consecutive, like all-star level first baseman playing for this team. Jose Abreu is the, long, the latest in the long line of them. Now his contract is up. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure if the team actually, there are reports he's not coming back. People have told me there's no way he's not coming back. Andrew Vaughn is in the way. Do they trade Andrew Vaughn for assets and help elsewhere? Well, in my opinion, there is nobody better to help talk to me about Mr. Jose Abreu than Mr. Phil Selig himself of CubaDugout.com. Phil, how you doing? Well, I'd be better if I was in consideration for the uh, White Sox management job. Uh, you know, I'd like to like to put out my candidacy. Obviously, I have a lot of experience with uh, with with uh, managing Cuban ball players, but uh, I don't think my phone's going to ring. But other than that, I'm doing great. How are things you, on your end? Do you think right off the bat you would imp- help improve this team from what Tony Larusa has done? <laughs> I don't know. You know what? Watching watching kind of from afar. I mean, the team was um, you know were they a perfect 500 team? Uh, which obviously fell well below the the expectations. We'll we'll probably talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, you know what what hand does uh, does Tony and and whatever manager and, and having a new manager being in there and the impact that that had on some of the veteran players and or you know does that play into the roster construction moving forward? So well yeah let's get right into it. Tony's gone. Um, there have been a lot of different candidates. Rick Hahn did his presser at the same time as the whole Tony announcement and gave a couple nuggets on what they're looking for when it comes to hiring a replacement knowing the roster that the white Sox have and the cuban influence and even just latin america influence on the roster in general who would you consider to be the best fit for the job realistically not saying like oh if the guardians fire terry francona well of course like duh like that that's the guy a lot of people would choose but like of the joe maddens and the Bruce Bochies and the Sandy Alomars, and they uh, interviewed Joe Espada from yeah. the Houston Astros. Of all the realistic names that are out there, who is the best in the opinion of Phil? So I think they'd be better off if they they leaned with someone who is a little bit younger, maybe uh, can play off of the energy of this team. Uh, and and so I, I can understand at a level where maybe they wanted to go with someone who was a bit more veteran and 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 whether or not that came to if, if that blew up in their face, if that was the wrong fit, if the if the inmates were kind of running the asylum. Um, so I know, as you mentioned, they, that Joe Spot is a guy that everybody has had their eyes on for the past couple of years and, and seems to uh, seems to fit in there that I think he'd 
be able to connect with the young players, with the Latin players, and maybe just needs that shot. Um, you know, Sandy Alomar, another guy that, uh, that's been around for, for a while. So um, I don't have... I don't have a definitive opinion on who that person would be versus I think that uh, a better fit might be someone who can connect with that, uh, that younger cohort and provide and, 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 and match a little bit of the, the young energy. Cause that definitely seemed like that was lacking this year. Although injuries obviously played a great part as well. They sure did. And speaking of leadership, there haven't been too many better Spanish speaking leaders in the history, or at least in modern history of major league baseball. There are some, pundits out there that have questioned the Braves leadership. I saw a little snippet from Bob Nightingale and people like Bruce Levine talking about his leadership. If you watch every single White Sox game, as I did in 2022, you know what Abreu brings to this team, especially the Spanish speaking side of it. What, first of all, let me ask you, what did you make of Jose Abreu's 2022 season on the field? So there's a level of it that make no mistake about it. When a team doesn't meet its expectations, they're going to look to the guy who has been the face and is amount. Is there going to be a certain amount of that? That is fair. And I bet you that, that Jose himself would admit and say, look, I didn't have the complete season that I wanted to, or based on what is normally expected of him, although there was still a lot to like in there, make no mistake about it. And so that kind of opens up the door moving forward of, of what's that player going to be as he continues to age and, or depending on, you know, what the team needs. So if there was a feeling out period um, this year, and, and I mean, if you look at the numbers, they had three batters that, that qualified, uh, had enough qualifying at bats. So uh, to, for, for, for a batting title and Abreu, even though averages were down, was in there. His power was obviously down. His production started off slow, came back around, but still didn't hit those hit those standards. So there is a part that I can understand if people are are trying to find you know those answers. So of course I think Tony Larusa has taken the brunt of it. That's the nature of the game as as a manager and possibly deservedly so. I think Abreu's going to wear some of that. But if people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think it's a big mistake. And I think there's still a lot to like there, especially for a team that hopefully gets healthy, that's going to have more of those pieces in play that were supposed to provide a lot of that sock in the lineup this year. And then with Abreu showing that, you know, he can mature as a hitter and still be valuable in there. Maybe it's not as a starter. But at the same time, I understand where going into this year, the roster construction was wonky. That doesn't necessarily solve itself, even just in getting healthy. So I can understand where there is some desire to either get younger, switch up that roster construction, move into another direction. Okay. But at the end of the day, not asking your prediction on whether or not he'll come back. I'm asking if you were Rick Hahn and you and Abreu's there, he'll stay if you want him to stay, he'll go if you want him to go, what would you do? So I think he's that type of guy that you should be looking at making him a white sock for, for life. And if that means, you know, you go a few more years than you would normally think to, and and now, of course, I don't know what uh, what that term is, but if he says he's willing to do five years at nine, 10 per, so that you know he's going to be worth that in the first year, first two years, maybe three, four, five, you wear that, but a veteran guy that again, I think is going to age out that you, even if you turn him into a platoon bat, you turn him into a DH or you look at dumping him at that point, I absolutely look at bringing him back and, you know, whoever ends up with Jose Abreu, it might be a different scenario. They may not be relying on him to hit in the middle of the lineup. I don't think the Sox would be, to be honest with you, but if anybody who brings him in there is going to have a veteran guy that can grind out of bats, still hit for average, which, you know, is, I know a lot of people think it doesn't mean anything, but it's still to me is a thing and it's still an important thing, but a guy who's still going to give you competitive at bats had the, you know, had the second highest on base percentage of his career this year. Um, still can drive in a run when you need to, even if he's not going to be that guy that knocks in 100. 100% I'd bring him back, but it's not my money. So, Are you one of the people that believes that the White Sox approach as a team impacted Jose Abreu at all this year? Because home runs were down. Andrew Vaughn led them with 17 home runs. Aaron Judge had 17 home runs on May 17th. So, you know, it's just a crazy down year for home runs. The Cubs had like three or four guys who would have led the White Sox in home runs and they finished 10 games behind them in the standings. I'm curious to know if you think there was an adjustment made this season that impacted everybody. And obviously a guy like Jose Abreu would take the brunt of it. Or do you think it was just a down year for him individually in terms of power? I think it could be a combination of things. I think that drop in power is is a is a big 
uh, reason why, you know, he didn't get those extra 25 RBI that he normally gets. And so, as you say, there's a level of that that's across the game. In in uh, in the piece that I wrote, I, I don't know if I got too deep into this, but one of the things that I noted is that the, the White Sox themselves scored 110 fewer runs than the year before. Now, I mean, there's a little bit of chicken and egg in that. If you're, if you're typical, your main run producer isn't the guy driving that in. Is that the reason why he didn't score 110 more runs? Or did you not score 110 more runs because those guys weren't there for him to, to drive in? Whereas you see, you know, the rest of his numbers were there. The 40 doubles is impressive. That's, is that the, the second time that he's done that? That's an impressive number. The average is, is you know, a 304. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny to look at that and think that, uh, is that is that the new 330 in today's baseball game? So there was a lot to like there. And, and if nothing else, I mean, the guy did play 157 games. So of all the abilities out there, availability is a big component that no one else seemed to be able to provide to the team. So he's been one of the most consistent. I'm on the field every single day players, not only in the history of the team, but I think there's a little bit more emphasis on it due to the fact that this team has just dealt with so many injuries and guys sitting out with things that seem to be things that Abreu wouldn't sit out with. And I'm not questioning anybody's character or anything like that. But do you think that does mean a little bit to the organization, the fact that he will play through pain? I mean, the dude got beamed in the head two times in three games last year and missed, I think, half a game because of it. It, it should. I mean, and, and so I, I wonder if there's a disconnect between, uh, you know, the, the, the Twitter sphere and, and, and the fan base and what teams actually look at for the sake that... All of these new metrics and 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 the like, and I'm not uh, I'm not anti analytics or anything along those lines, but I think there is something to be said, or or sometimes it gets lost in the discourse of a guy that goes out and plays every game versus oh you know here's here's his rate stats here's all of that sort of thing. If the guy's not on the field, you know what does it what does it really matter? And so I think that is a skill that uh, that should be commended. There has to be some consideration for that. Now the other side of that is to play a little bit of the advocate on the other on the in the other direction. That if his production is dropping because of age, are they looking at it saying, can we even rely on this guy to play 157 games moving forward? You know, there, there's probably some uh, some consideration for that, but. At the same time, for a guy who's been healthy the entire time, that 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 has to have some value, or at least it has a great deal of value to me. So when you see and you look at this White Sox team as a whole, outside of just you know the Cuban players surrounding Abreu, you have Andrew Vaughn, who's I, I believe he's a California kid. He definitely went to Cal, and he's a first baseman. He's not very good defensively in the outfield, according to every metric out there. And then Eloy Jimenez, he's better in the outfield than Vaughn, but he's still not good. And he's also a tremendous injury liability when it comes to playing the outfield. If Abreu does come back, how do you fit them in? Would you trade Andrew Vaughn for assets? Eloy Jimenez seemingly has to be the DH because I think he's the one guy in this team who could take the mantle as the best hitter on the team. That's just my personal opinion. The power on this guy when he's healthy is unbelievable. I think he could be better than Abreu long term. Where do you stand on this little log gym that they have Gavin Sheets in the mix too? I find a lot of times they, they, they have a, a tendency to work themselves out, um, you know, so and, and that's tough when you're trying to plan out an offseason. So now let me look at it through through the lens that I typically look at things through sure. that. I think some of it is going to um, solve itself and, and, and hopefully affordably for a team like that. And what I mean by that is Oscar Colas, I think, um, without jumping the jump of the gun on this, if, if Oscar Colas, the season that he had is ready to push for the right field job at the start of next year. So that being said, I get it. A team with expectations, you know, and, and that had a down year this year, are you looking at and rolling that dice with that unproven commodity versus if he catches fire, he looks ready, you know, then I find there's there's the potential for so many other things to flow from there. So let's say that at the beginning of next year, you have Colas in, in, in right field, Rover comes back healthy, and you even start uh, Jimenez in, in left field. But as you mentioned, I think everybody kind of looks at him and thinks that, that he's, you know, the DH of the future. But, you know, how many games could he play in left field for the sake of if you want to run that rotation of, you know, first base DH between Vaughn, Abreu, and Jimenez? And then, you know, if if injury 
degrees or uh, similarly through through my uh, through my kind of my, my Cuban bias. But also, I think that uh, most White Sox fans would sign up for this as well, that if that Colos uh, prognostication comes to uh, to fruition and then hopefully maybe by midseason or towards the end of the year that a, that a Yuelke Cespedes can push for either a fourth outfielder role or, or mix in there and do that, then that outfield alignment all of a sudden looks way better, eliminates that that issue that they had this year. But then you still do kind of run into some of that that uh, that logjam at the other positions for a bats. However, as we've seen, health being an issue, that um, you know, uh, I'm I'm confident that there will be enough of bats for everyone. But that being said, again, to to kind of go back to the idea that if you have expectations, how do you how do you rely on that if another deal is out there that you think someone can can come over and take that role full time? But it doesn't sound as if that's the route that the the White Sox are necessarily going. So it's it's uh, on some level. These problems will solve themselves if the guys that are in the pipeline make it so that they have to play them and the other guys blocking them are, are basically forced to the bench. Sure. And I don't know if you've allowed yourself to think about this at all yet, but if the White Sox do decide that they are going to, in fact, move on from Jose Abreu, are there any other teams in Major League Baseball out there that you see him as a good fit with? I know the Astros yep. have been in the mix because Yuli Gurriel might be out of there, and I think the New York Mets come to mind a little bit. I wouldn't surprise me at all if the St. Louis Cardinals mm-hmm. were a team looking for a guy like Abreu, yep. so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. I think it can go one of two directions. And so, you know, again, and, and, and this could be the, the argument for why the White Sox ultimately make a, a decision that they do. Is he a 600 a bat um, full-time starting first baseman or is the guy, you know, more of a, a, a platoon bat or, or phrase more, is he going to be that, that starter for 600 a bats on a contender, a team with, with uh, grand aspirations versus, you know, could he, when you mentioned the Cardinals and, and I know he's, he's obviously quite a bit younger than, uh, than, than Pujols, but, and who had his resurgence, could he go into there and, 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 fought and, and, and help out, but at the same time, you know, with Goldschmidt uh, holding it down there. Although I guess obviously there'll be more DH at bats with the, the DH in the National League. Um, you know, I, I haven't I haven't paid as much mind to that because I think there's so many other pieces that have to fall into play. But um, if the White Sox do let him walk, I think if whoever ends up scooping him up is going to is going to end up looking like they got one of the steals of of the off season. Um, and and to, to be realistic on that as well, a lot of that depends on the dollars. So you know. Is he uh, is he a fifteen million dollar player? Is he a ten million dollar player? You know that that would be the debate if he's in somewhere in that range for for two three years. I would look at that and say that I think that's a guy that can still uh, can still contribute and, and is going to provide a lot of value. And somebody that a lot of people, White Sox fans, White Sox media, White Sox baseball fans in general, even believe can take over the face of the franchise from Jose Abreu at any given point is Luis Robert. At the end of last season, when he came back from injury, he looked every bit as good as he's prognosticated to be. And at the start of this season, he was every bit as good as he looks to be. And then the second half hit the post all-star break. Luis Robert season did not go his way. I don't believe he hit a home run in the second half. If he did, he hit one or two. And the RBI numbers were down. The batting average was down. And then we got to the end of the season where he was swinging with one hand. It didn't look healthy. The team did him no favors. I have inside information that Luis Robert is not happy about the way he was handled at the Mm -hmm. end of last season at all. What do you make of what happened to Luis Robert between the first and second half? I, I wrote an article in the spring and, you know, I, I was, um, I've compared him to other players in the past and maybe they weren't the, a perfect comparison, um, versus what I started to see a little bit more of, and 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 I want to give the caveat that I that I I hope that I'm wrong on the injury aspect of this. I see a lot of Eric Davis in 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 Luis Robert, and, and in terms of that player of what if, who make no mistake about it. It's, it's I even had to go back and 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 as I did my research for this to see that you know Eric Davis still did play 17 years, did still put up you know good numbers, had some 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 resurgences here and there. But if you looked at who he was when he first broke into the league versus what his uh, his resume ended up being there's there's a tantalizing amount of what if 
Luis Robert, I know, is still young, but but is kind of uh, leaning into that a little bit. I really hope it's not the case. As I've said before, I think this guy has the highest ceiling of anyone. I think that even in struggling through that, because that lack of power is is concerning, but let's loop that back to it seemed to be an epidemic for all of the White Sox. And so at the same time, though, he did maintain a solid average, I think it was if I saw at one point, uh, and, and again, I took based on my bias, what I do, I took note of this, that if there were 14 or 15 qualifying uh, players over 300 in the majors, eight of them were Cuban at one point. I think that number ended up shaving down to 11 qualifying and, and three of them being Cuban, but Robert was still there with a solid average. But yeah, there's, if I'm the White Sox, I'm doing everything I can right now to make certain that this guy is healthy going into next year. If that means I'm keeping him in bubble wrap until February or March, I'm doing that. That guy is the linchpin. You have to keep him healthy. You have to do everything to give him the opportunity to blossom. And I think everything else will flow from there. Are you worried about him in 2023 or do you think he could get back to what we know he can? I, I don't know. It, it's I, I've seen where, you know, the injuries have, have derailed guys. I still, it's, it's still too early for that. Um, and again, just from, from a karma standpoint, I wish nothing but health and nothing but success for him. But at the same time, it, it is, it's gotta be a little bit worrying. And now, and, and if, for someone who probably watches the team uh, much closer than I do, um, you know, is, is part of the solution maybe in moving him to one of the corner outfit or giving him a break there or, you know, creating more of the DH log jam. What, what's your opinion? Do you think that maybe some of it was the wear and tear of just covering so much grand ground in center field or. No, uh, for me, what the big issue with Robert was he was playing really well. And then there was a series in Detroit in August and he slid into second base and he yeah. hurt his wrist really bad. And they wouldn't put him on the injured list, yeah. but they also wouldn't play him every day. And I've been told by people in the organization that aren't, you know, Rick Hahn or yeah. any of the really higher ups that Robert is pissed about it because he would have rathered either going on the IL and getting completely healthy and not yeah. coming back till he could play to his potential or playing every single day until his wrist falls off. And, you know, they allowed him to do neither of those two things. He would play one out of every four days. And how do you expect a guy with a pained wrist to play once every four days? At least if you're playing every day, you can kind of like overcome the pain and get used to it. He just was unable to do either of those two things. So for me, the entire White Sox training staff should be held accountable. Tony La Russa has already been held accountable. Rick Hahn needs to have an entire, I mean, is how responsible is a general manager for the everyday ins and outs of the player health. If I were the general manager, I would have been screaming at someone back in August. And I guess Rick Hahn deserves to take some blame for it as well. Kenny Williams. I mean, this is a, is a guy who we both agree can be a face of a franchise if healthy. So for me, my opinion is you have to come into this next season with an entirely different mindset on how players train, how players recover from injury, uh, how we handle the injured list. I mean, we saw Leary Garcia play every single day there in August, and he was clearly ailing something. And we're comparing Leary Garcia to Luis Robert. Are you kidding me right now? Like, so for me, coming into next year, it's all about managerial decisions, training staff decisions, and Luis Robert being honest with himself and the team because he has to know how valuable he is. When he, that that series in Fenway, he hit a ball over the green monster that wasn't even like close to landing in the stadium. Like it went out of the park and I, I saw some Red Sox people tweeting that might be the farthest home run I've ever seen a road player hit at Fenway Park and that is no joke that stadium is 110 years old or however old it is at this point like I, I, I agree with you they have to be so careful it has to be their number one yeah. thing this offseason is making sure that that man is fine in terms of his position he's not a difference maker with his arm in, like in my estimation, I thought honestly he'd be a little bit better in the outfield defensively. His arm just isn't as impact from center field as I thought it was going to be. So do you move him to left? Because he's still athletic enough to make all the catches in center field. You just can't, you just can't expect him to gun guys out at home on a regular basis. So you got to take the good with the bad. I would leave him in center because of his range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that assessment, and, and I think that uh, level of what you say there, and, and and if you just everything about this last White Sox season is 500, 
it's 50 50 every decision looks like there wasn't you're like okay are you going in on this or are you just oh we'll let him play a little bit or is he injured is he not and so even in 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 some of the roster construction some of the in the offseason just everything seemed like it was 50 50 and so you know if if that means if they've recognized that that um you know you've got to go all in on 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 some of this an overused term obviously but yeah go all in on keeping him healthy go all in on on you know kind of uh if it's the prospects giving those guys a shot here or if it is signing someone you know instead of trying to piecemeal this together but yeah i, th I think his future is in center field but um you know as i said if some of the other um and hopefully like my uh, my my dream scenario is it is a stocked cuban outfield uh that will also uh, make his life easier with uh with some better defenders on either side of him and and uh, taking a little bit of that pressure off to in, in the gaps i hope so you can use an injury that happened to michael kopak to analyze what they did with Robert Michael Kopech. There was a game. It was later in, it was later than August, but he was clearly ailing on the mound and he's taking warm up pitches and they're letting him go out there still throwing to Detroit hitters. I think it was Detroit and make no mistake about it, Detroit stunk this year, but they have hitters in their lineup that if you miss your pitches, they'll hit at the Pluto. Speaking of guys like Javier Baez and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Eric Haas is a white Sox killer. You know, that Detroit team has some guys in their lineup that can hit the ball. And I'm like, why is Kopech pitching? He's missing. He's walking, guys. He's throwing 92 right down the middle. Like, Major League Baseball players are going to kill this. And that's exactly what happened to Robert. It's like they have no actual management of what's going on. And you just have to pray that it changes this offseason. And perhaps that was the influence. Uh, and, and, and again, not to... to to bash on, on Tony, the, the signing was, uh, or, or that hiring was interesting to me. And, and I have a, an immense amount of respect for everything he's accomplished in this game. But if uh, perhaps that manifestation, I know that um, I saw, saw the teeth gnashing over some of the, the lineups that were put out there, but maybe that, uh, that old school influence of just letting people work through, which, and, and I, I'd be a hypocrite if I weren't going to say that at points I yelled at my TV of, oh, why is this guy not, not being stretched out further? But what, like you say, in, in specific specific instances like that where it's I wonder if that attitude almost permeated and, and kind of trickled down into the way that they actually uh, you know manage players that might be hurt and, and like you say either okay get the guy off the field put him on the IL or you know trust him if he says that he's not hurt but you can't be you can't be uh, pussyfooting around that and and uh, you know playing again 50 50 so yeah and that game for Kopech that was he threw one inning got they were down seven to nothing after the first inning and that was the last we saw of him this season so now we have to spend all offseason hoping that the pitching version of Luis Robert I know he's not Cuban but he's their <laughs> pitching him and Dylan Cease are like the yeah. the Luis Robert of the pitching staff like high hopes need them to hit but another guy that I honestly think probably of any Cuban player on this White Sox team hell any any player on this team that is the most intriguing going forward for me is Yoan Moncada. He has been the definition of up and down since coming yep. into Major League Baseball. In 2018, his rookie year, he struggled, but you know there were flashes. When he hit a home run against the Cubs at Wrigley Field, there was like this beautiful swing. It's like that is the future. And then in 2019, he hits 25 bombs. I think he was gaining in on 80 RBIs, which isn't like superstar stuff, but it's really good. And the batting average was high. The on-base percentage was high. Got some MVP votes in the American League. Then 2020 comes. He gets COVID. 2022 or 2021, he was a very okay player. He was about a four-and-a-half war player. People hated it that he was a four-and-a-half war player because he was the number one prospect in all of baseball. And he needed to be Mookie Betts in order for anyone to like him. But now, 2022 was awful. And I'm not sure it can come back to ever to what it was in 20, 2019. But I'd sign up for 2021. Keep take me off the cliff on Yohan Moncada. So I guess the uh, first thing I should acknowledge, I think it's on Facebook. He goes as Yo Yo. So uh, that might be uh, that might be apropos. Um, I never it's, thought about it that way. Yeah, it's it's um, and I, and I'm someone. I think even we spoke about this earlier uh, earlier in the year. Last time we spoke, that you know, still have expectations for him, but it um it can get late it can get late early um so now the only thing is is he going to be emblematic and again it's the chicken and egg were the white Sox? did they struggle so much purely because of moncada no doubt he had a hand in that um it was moncada struggling because everything going else 
on with the White Sox. It's clearly something was not right either in that clubhouse, if it's the training. Um, you know, that's a guy that, of course, you're uh, – I don't think you want to sell low on him right now, but you're going to go – I'm not going to say as far because obviously we already discussed how important Rover is, but if there's a if there's a a, a B side to that or a one A to that, that's a guy that um, if he doesn't rebound, I think that you are looking at going in another direction um, sooner than than later. And again, I, I hope I think the talent's there, but at the same time, I, I've discussed this increasingly, and and I put out a uh, put out a video a couple of months ago where I, I I started to dig into his path off the island, and, and there's there's some fascinating bits in there. Make no mistake about it. And and, and one of the chaps that I consulted with, he asked. Why were the Red Sox so quick to get rid of him after after um, you know after spending all of this money? And I mean, maybe it was just because the Chris Sale trade was too good. Maybe they they you know they they had kind of a change in some of the ownership, I think, or some of the decision making there, and, and felt that after the Rusny Castillo signing, that maybe the the the, the, the very early returns. But it's it's one of those things that I think he's going to have to show his commitment uh, between the lines. The talent is there, but has he been as committed to what he needs to do? And you know, maybe this season will wake that up to for him as well. That um, that that window can close fairly quickly at least in the uh, on the on the on the south side and um you know i guess i guess the, the biggest disappointment that i that i might have especially if abreu is leaving and you know let's say rover what it, if he does get healthy if he's not that you know there was a potential window here to see those guys really maximize what they can do and have that Cuban contingent and maybe a couple of the other prospects have pushed their hand. Now it looks like that's very quickly potentially going to unravel, but that's the nature of the game. And, and so um, just like I said, I, I would have loved to see, uh, you know, kind of um, all, of, all of the Cuban guys for, for Chicago holding it down healthy and, and uh, reaching the expectations. Window's not closed on that, but it's um, I, I can understand the skepticism and uh, if people are starting to get a little bit worried about what the future holds. And the last Cuban guy on the MLB roster that I wanted to touch on had a very similar year to Yohan Moncada, if not worse, and that is Yasmani Grandal, who in his career, has been one of the great catchers of his time. There's no doubt that if you're ranking the best catchers of the 2010s, Yasmani Grandal's name is right near the top, if not at the top. And the White Sox got him. He was pretty good in 2020, but he was splitting time with James McCann. McCann caught Giolito. He caught, uh, I want to say he caught Dane Dunning too, but Grandal got a lot of the starts as well. Um, 2021 comes bad mediocre in the first half gets hurt misses a couple weeks about six weeks and then when he comes back he's got mvp level numbers from like early august to the rest of the season and his ops and that stretch is like over 900 we're talking mike trout level offensive numbers he's hitting a home run every other day then this year comes he had five home runs i think i might have lucked into five home obviously i'm joking but i like he was just brutal this season offensively and defensively so is he cooked I don't know. And and so of all of the guys that we mentioned there that that I think probably has the potential to drop off that cliff if it hasn't already happened is, a, is of course, a catcher in his uh, in his in his early 30s. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, it loops back and I don't want to be repetitive on this that, um, you know, we saw uh, the catching position overall was was very down this year. Um, and, and so is that emblematic? Was this a weird season? Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's more in there, but by the same token, is that guy going to be a starting catcher? Uh, there was debate I know amongst uh, the White Sox fans that, you know, when his bat was playing as well as it was, you're willing to look past some of the defensive deficiencies. Now, uh, you know, is there is there any doubt that I don't think he's a great fit for that roster, except there's not a huge amount of catching depth out there. So same thing where I think the, the fortunes for the White Sox in 2023 are hopefully if it was a culture thing and and, and if it was a manager thing. And, and, you know, so can you very quickly, can you can you can you, you know, reengage that culture? Can you get the right manager and can you have health? Of all of the guys that, um, and, and of all of the Cuban guys, I would say that uh, the closest to, to that, if I had the most concern, would be Grandal. Um, 
But that being said, you know, maybe maybe all of those things that I just said can turn around. But it's a tough uh, that that would be a tough decision of what where you go just because of of the fact of where the catching position is in baseball uh, overall. Earlier, or it wasn't earlier in the year. It was at the end of last season. I had Gavin Sheets on this show, and I asked him. And Gavin Sheets is a young man from Baltimore, Maryland. His dad played in the MLB, so he has lots of influence there as well. But when I asked him who his favorite teammate is and who was his best mentor in terms of an older veteran that gave him advice and helped him along become like an everyday player, the answer was Yasmani Grandal. Does that mm-hmm. surprise you at all, hearing that from an American kid from Baltimore, that this Cuban catcher that has spent a little bit of time with a couple other teams in the National League was his biggest influence? Well, uh, so I don't know if we discussed this last time that um, so obviously Grandel, uh, most of his formative years were were in the States, but, but obviously born in, in Cuba and, and yeah. came up that am I am I surprised that a catcher who, you know, are typically a different beast. And I mean that in, 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 in positive ways, uh, but we haven't seen any other Cuban catchers come up and, and have success. So I don't know if that's analogous as to, to why is it his ability to connect? Is it, is it, is it the, typically the language skills, the lack we have seen other uh, Latino catchers, but it's interesting. So all, all to say, I would think that, you know, if, if a Grandel is a guy who came up kind of maybe as more of a, of a grinder, and then and then discovered it with the bat that um, I think that as a catcher, you have to be humble. And part of that humbleness is, you know, how you engage with your teammates is trying to help uh, help uh, help everybody get better. I mean, basically, you're, you're coaching your pitchers in any given game. So I, I would say that doesn't surprise me. And and but uh, I, I do like to hear that. And and I hope that same thing. If, if Abreu has been that mentor, that that Grandal has played that same role for uh, for the guys and, you know, same thing towards if there was a schism in the clubhouse or whatever was happening there, it's, it's clearly something was off this year, but it sounds as if there's good people there. So hopefully that transition, maybe that rebound will be uh, be easier in, in 2023. Absolutely. I appreciate that answer. So the one player who is coming up from the Cuban ranks that made a, a highly positive impact this season is as we touched on earlier in the show, Oscar Colas, he has been pretty, pretty good throughout this minor league season. I think the White Sox were hoping that he would get the call up to the big league team. But I also wonder if their record had anything to do with him not doing that. And if they just started Project Birmingham and then at the end of the year, bring him up to the Charlotte Knights. But, you know, he didn't come to the MLB, but he did reach AAA. What did you make of his season? So I was actually, I was impressed with, um, on, on some level with every one of the, the main, um, Cuban prospects in the system, but, but Oscar Colas, I don't think you could ask for, for much else. And, and I'll be the first to admit that, uh, when towards the end of August, uh, started questioning whether or not he might get the call and, and, um, and then in, in digging realized, you know, this was obviously they, they've kind of changed, you know, with only adding the two roster spots and then the extension of the of the triple A season, because um, I was like, am I making this up? Does this not seem like it's going way longer? And 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 it definitely did. So I think, as you mentioned, kind of as they faded, they looked at it and they realized, OK, let's let's because um, he went from went from a or advanced A to double A to triple A in one year and, and basically did well at each one of those levels in some regards outpaced his performance in the other levels. So maybe in about mid September, they looked at said in a typical year or under the old schedule. Yeah. We would have brought him up because that season's over and we wanted to get some of this, but this is a kid that we can put in, can still get at bats and, and actually had, uh, you know, even in, in the short time that he was in triple A, I think his power was, was, was scaled up to, to even what he did and his numbers, were impressive at the other level so that uh, as mentioned I don't think you can ask for anything more out of what he did in 2022 and outside of service time manipulation um, if he doesn't start if he doesn't start on on the roster as a starting right fielder in 2023 uh, I'll be a little bit surprised by that Um or or at least has to be given that chance to fight for that job in spring training. But I think he's shown enough at this point to be in that conversation and to to likely hopefully win that job. So does he, in your opinion, still have star potential? Uh 
So uh, the one thing that I think has come to uh, to fruition or to pass uh, this season, and and uh, same thing, I think we discussed this. I think if I was looking at a ceiling for Colos, I think he has the potential to be a bigger impact bat. I think Yoelki Cespedes has the chance to have a longer career and that he's more versatile. So those two things look like they have, have, have started to flush out a little bit more. Now, neither one of them are in the majors yet. I get that. But again, watching that Ascension, uh, Colos, the, the jumps that he's made at every level, I think it, it looks as if his bat is going to play up. Whereas, and, and, and again, I'll always compare those guys and compare a lot of the Cuban guys. I think Cespedes looks a little bit more versatile and has those skills and has shown some, some, some good things there. And, and, you know, has, has advanced, not at the speed that Colos did, but again, that, that was pretty Pretty impressive what he did. I think Colos is uh, looks as if he continues on this projection is going to be a uh, is going to be an impact bat. All right, I, I like to hear that because I'm I'm a firm believer in Colos. I liked what I saw from him in the minor leagues this season, and I'm I'm hoping that at least two thirds of the outfield next season is the Cuban connection with Robert and Colas, and I hope everybody stays healthy. Now. Before we get off topic of Cuban baseball, I just got want to get your real quick roundtable on are there other Cubans around the league? And I know I asked you this last time we were on, but a whole season has passed now. Are there any other Cubans around the league that don't play for the White Sox? Perhaps maybe somebody that is in the Chicago Cubs organization or just elsewhere in the league, both a veteran and a prospect that you are super duper excited about. So, um, if anybody was watching the Mariners and the Astros the other day, I uh, was kind of doing some work on my laptop, had it on in the background and look up at the scenario that Jordan Alvarez is coming to the plate. And that scenario was like, okay, you walk him and you move on to the next guy. But you're, you're, you're pitching to him and you're bringing in. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> so, you know, there's a guy that I think has become the, the, the best Cuban hitter in, in baseball right now. Um, for me, I, you know, I focus probably a little bit more on some of the prospects and I think the, um, the best value signing that happened this year was, was a chap, uh, by the Baltimore Orioles and, in, in uh, Cesar Prieto, uh, young, young second baseman who actually played some third base as well. That, um, I think, uh, similar, similar to a Colos, I think could be pushing for a job at the start of, uh, at the start of next season. So that's, uh, that's one of the guys that, uh, that I'm intrigued with. And, and, and also, you know, there are other Cuban names in the, in the White Sox system, like I said, that that showed um, showed elements. I think Gilbert Sanchez, you know, maybe uh, could be pushing for a utility role or or maybe grades out as such, you know, kind of um, had put up very good double A numbers, put up decent triple A numbers at 25 years of age is probably, you know, uh, maybe that next man up if, if uh, although a lot of people were calling for that this year, uh, next man up in, in 2023 to fill in in some of the infield. Uh, Brian Ramos, um, you know, who uh, spent some time in double A lit it up in, in, in class A is still 20 years old. I uh, took a little bit of a step back at double A, but I mean, that's, that's, I don't even know if that's a fair statement when you look at a 20 year old kid. And of course, uh, Norhe Vera, who, when he was on the mound was, was impressive. And, and again, made as far as double A, there are some concerns I think over where there are a couple little uh, nagging injuries and, and maybe they babied him a little bit. Um, but when he's been on the mound, he looks as advertised and, and, you know, um, so basically I think you've got to give uh, for all of the, all of the Cubans in, in the White Sox system this year is a grade of A, uh, hands down. Absolutely. We love to hear it. We love the Cuban history when it comes to the White Sox. Obviously, it started with the great Minnie Minoso being the first black player to ever don a Chicago baseball uniform. And I take great pride in that. He wears my favorite number, number nine. So I'm very, very happy with it. So to kind of go off topic just a little bit before we let you go. I know that your hometown Ottawa Senators had an outstanding offseason. They brought in Alex DeBrinkett from the Chicago Blackhawks with a huge trade. They signed Claude Giroux in free agency. They traded for Cam Talbot, the goaltender for the Minnesota Wild, is now there. He, he's hurt for now. But when he comes back, it's a nice-looking team. as guys like Tim Stutzla and Brady Kachuk and Batherson and Norris. All these guys are just sensational. There's a lot of excitement surrounding the Ottawa Senators this year, and I'm curious on your take of the hockey team. 
sensational no no pun intended no there's there's a lot of positivity um coming into this season and um you know we talk about culture and 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 so i think there's uh, there, there's been some big changes there and, um, you know, talking to people locally and, and, and even in, within the business community, it seems as if, um, you know, there, there were a lot of complaints in the past over how they did business both on and off the ice, off the ice seems like, uh, they're trying to make good on, on many things on the ice. They, they, they're trying to make good on that as well. So there, there's a, a level of excitement. And you know, unfortunately, I guess one of the, one of the big signings coming over from uh, from the from the Blackhawks. But um, you know, there there's uh, there's a lot of positivity here, and we were kind of discussing before we jumped on that one of the bigger things is there's there's been a push for a long time for for a new stadium. Um, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, Ottawa isn't the greatest sports town. Uh, sometimes they get a little too caught up in, in in expecting people to go purely because they're fanatics when this this town isn't full of fanatics. So, you know, it's, are you selling the sizzle or are you selling the steak? Uh, they're building towards finally understanding, you know, put a little bit of sizzle on that. And so uh, I think that there's, there's a great deal of excitement that how this team does is, is improving the, you know, the overall sentiment in, in town here and that push for the, uh, for the new arena. And uh, it looks as if the uh, things are, are on the upswing for the, uh, for the Ottawa Senators. Yeah, I've always had a soft spot for them. I would probably like if I know it sounds crazy, but if I honestly believe if I could rank my favorite hockey teams one through thirty-two, I'd be able to do it with relative accuracy. And Ottawa would be in my top ten. I was obsessed with Alfredson when I was a kid. I thought he was just incredible. And then they traded for Bobby Ryan from Anaheim, and he changed. He ended up wearing number nine too. I think he switched to six though. And now they have Stutzla, who was German with Leon Dreisaitl, and. Oh, I just, I think Ottawa is great. I can't wait to watch that team this year. So before I let you go, though, I do have to put you on the spot and ask you who you think is going to win the World Series. So as a lifelong Yankees fan, and, and don't uh, don't at me, I'm not going to say the Yankees, actually. Uh, I don't have huge expectations for for the Yankees. I think, I think it's going to come out of the National League. Um there's if this is just my own personal thing i know the dodgers are the prohibitive favorites there's just something about them i know they won in 2020 i'm not discrediting that but um i think the braves are potentially even more dangerous than they were last year i just got a feeling about that team that's kind of my uh, my prohibitive uh, my my prohibitive favorite uh, right now we agree when i made my playoff bracket i had the braves beating the astros in a world series rematch and a world series repeat so we agree on that. I have, I am also a little biased. I have family in Atlanta. So, or used to have family in Atlanta. They came back, but you know, I appreciate you coming on our show so much. It's always a great time. I fully expect, you know, some analysis later on in the off season, as we prepare for the world baseball classic, I'm excited Absolutely. to yep. talk about team Cuba with you and, you know, see how they're going to go and maybe even team Canada a little bit. Are, are you at all excited about team Canada? Uh, to a lesser extent, I know that uh, things things are improving there, and and so I guess um, I wasn't a huge uh, World Baseball Classic fan before, kind of delving more into the Cuba, and then by proxy, I guess you know it, it increases that excitement. So, you know, it's uh, if there's if there's a will to talk about that, you know, it's uh, like I said, I think there's some good things uh, good things growing there. The game itself is is. The, the one benefit or the one thing you've got to give kudos to the WBC is it's uh, it looks like it's going to be the most competitive field that they've had. And that's good for baseball overall. That's what I was going to say. I, I'm normally just, OK, get me through the World Baseball Classic. I'll watch it because it's baseball. But get me to the MLB season this year. I'm like, Team USA, they got who? Tim, Tim Anderson. Oh, the White Sox are playing them in spring training. You know, I just think there's so much excitement coming into it this year so yes credit to them i appreciate that little nugget there perfect well thanks and yeah I'd like to, to come back on if, if news breaks on that there's a lot of different ways that that roster can shake down I, i've written a little bit about that but um they're keeping it close to the vest um you know if uh, actually can, if i can end with one little anecdote uh kind of the current state of cuban baseball the uh they're supposed to have their elite series that was supposed to start this past saturday um that has been held up because the uniforms have not arrived um so it's it's just so prototypically cuban but uh for anybody that wants updates on that once they're finally decked out and they get playing the games follow along at cubadugout.com and and i'll uh, try and provide some updates
Absolutely. And Phil, what's your Twitter account again? So all, all of my handles, my website, Cuba dugout or Cuba dugout.com. Absolutely. And everybody make sure you follow Phil on social media. He does the best analysis of Cuban baseball in the world. And for us White Sox fans out there, that is a huge portion of our fanhood because you got guys like Abreu, Grandal, Mancada, Robert, Coles, Cespedes. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And every team in baseball is impacted by Cuba baseball to some degree. And Phil is the best in the business at it. Phil, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it very much. Perfect. Thank you. Absolutely. And everybody, we will send you to a quick commercial break. What was the motivation to get into scouting? I guess I've been analytical Mm -hmm. in that area, like even when I was like a a kid. That's Forte's first touchdown, and he autographed it. That's the Pro Bowl players one year. All those are our picks, so that's Briggs, Nate Masher, Tommy Harris. Two things, the bigger ones on top, Mm -hmm. those were gifts from Parcells when we went to the Super Bowls that he gave all the scouts. See, five bears, the bears gave us that. That, Ted Phillips gave us his opening night at the new Soldier Field. That's Devin's touchdown in the Super Bowl. Devin autographed that. This is our, our first draft class. Welcome back to Crosstown Crosstalk presented by the Barroom Network. My name is Vinny Parisi, and I am so thankful to Phil Selig for coming on CubaDugout.com. Make sure you follow him on social media for all things Cuban baseball. We are big fans of him him here at the Barroom Network. Before I sign off and let everybody go enjoy the rest of this huge sports day that we got going on, I mean, guys, there's like seven NHL games tonight. The Chicago Bears take on the Washington Commanders. Obviously, that's a big deal here at the Barroom Network. You got baseball playoffs. The Mariners and the, um, what are they called? The Houston Astros just started. I'm very excited to see how that game goes. Obviously, we have people at this network rooting for the Mariners. Few people root for the Astros at this point. But the game between the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Guardians has been postponed, so we will have to wait to see that. Um, but you know, let's dive into those series a little bit in game one, the New York Yankees played the Cleveland guardians and the guardians, they took a one, nothing lead and they looked like they were going to be able to hang with the Yankees. And then as the game went on, Garrett Cole, actually, he got himself into some trouble and he always found a way out of it. And the Yankees ended up getting the win. Anthony Rizzo with a big home run. Josh Donaldson thought he had a home run. It bounced off the top of the wall, and then he was thrown out at first because he didn't know it wasn't a home run. It was just a wild scene, but the Yankees ended up taking the one nothing series lead. And then the Houston Astros against the Seattle Mariners. Justin Verlander, the upcoming American League Cy Young Award winner, got the start for the Houston Astros, and you knew that if the Seattle Mariners wanted to win this game, they were going to have to find a way to get to Verlander, and they did. They scored six runs on Verlander, which is just something that hasn't happened at all yet this postseason. And they got up to a seven to one lead in the ball game. And the Astros came all the way back. It was seven to five down to their final strike runners on first and second. And as Phil Selig talked about earlier in the show, the best Cuban baseball player in the world, Jordan Alvarez, came up to bat and he hit a walk-off home run, taking victory from the hands of defeat, and the Houston Astros took a one nothing series lead over those Mariners. By the time you're listening to this, you might know the result of the game going on right now. It is still 0-0 as we speak in the bottom of the first inning. Or if you're watching a live, maybe you got that game on in the background. Who knows? But yes, that game is going on. The Mariners are looking to tie it up. And then over in the National League, in game one of the American League Division Series, the or the National League Division Series, 
the Los Angeles Dodgers kind of took it to the San Diego Padres with relative ease. And on the other side, the Philadelphia Phillies stunned the Atlanta Braves. And then the Atlanta Braves started to come back a little bit in that game. They ended up hitting a three-run home run in the ninth inning, but it wasn't enough. They lost the game 7-6. to six, And you knew coming into the next game that the Braves would have a chance to really take that momentum that they built at the end of their last game. And they won the series, or they won the game 3 to nothing. And then the Padres came out yesterday, right along the same time as the Phillies and the Braves game ended. And they took it to the Los Angeles Dodgers. There was back and forth. Manny Machado hit a home run. The Dodgers ended up taking the lead. Then the Padres got it tied again. And then the Padres took the lead again. And then the Dodgers tied it. And then finally the Padres took the 5-3 to three lead. And they ended up hanging on for the win. It was fishy at the end. Josh Hader's giving up hard contact late in the game. And the... Padres and Braves both got the series tied. I think the Braves are going to complete the comeback in the series and end up taking the win, but I still think the Dodgers are going to find a way to claw out and win this series. But if you're wondering how we got there, since our last show, there was just some crazy, crazy stuff that happened over the wild card weekend. Of course, I'm talking about the fact that the Cleveland Guardians somehow managed to stun the Tampa Bay Rays by only giving up three total runs to them over a span of, or I'm sorry, it was one total run over a span of two games, and the Guardians pitching just dominated. And then the second game in that series, it went 15 innings, and the Guardians hit a walk-off solo shot in the bottom of the 15th inning to sweep the Rays out of town. Um, the Mariners were losing at one point to the Blue Jays after taking a one nothing series lead. They lost to the Blue or they were losing to the Blue Jays. I want to say two, four, two, three, four, eight to one. And they came all the way back and stunned the Blue Jays and swept them out of the first round. And then, of course, the Phillies got to where they are by taking a two nothing series victory over the St. Louis Cardinals. So now Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina they are officially retired after what was a magical season for the Cardinals, but they couldn't get it done against these stunning Phillies. So the two teams that ended decade or more long playoff droughts, the Mariners and the Phillies, both advanced to the second round, and then there's the big one. The big series, the only series in the wildcard round that went the distance of three games was the series between those San Diego Padres and New York Mets. The Mets, they blew the first game. The Padres took a lead. Then the Mets kind of took a, a pretty big win over the San Diego Padres in game number two. And you're like, okay, that's the Mets that we've been watching all season long. They're a better team on paper than the Padres. They have better pitching. It's DeGrom, it's Scherzer, it's Bassett, it's Walker. You know, the Mets are just a better team than the Padres. And then game three came around. And the New York Mets did what the New York Mets do. And they lost to the Padres by a final score of six to nothing. And when they were losing four to nothing, they brought in Edwin Diaz with the trailing four to nothing. And they played that song with the trumpets and they celebrated as if he was coming in for a three out save. No, you can't do that. Mets. You can't do that. Mets. That was a bad look for the Mets. I can't believe they did that. And now once again, the New York Mets failed to meet all expectations People were comparing the White Sox season to the Mets. Okay, let's hold it right there. The Mets won 101 games and made it to the playoffs. Yes, they choked a 10-and-a-half-game lead in the division to the Braves, who won the division and got a bye. Um, but no, we're not We're not going there. We would all sign up for the New York Mets season as opposed to what we got from the White Sox this season. But, you know, as we stand right now, Mariners and Astros tied at zero. Series one nothing Astros. Yankees one nothing series lead over the Guardians. Today's game was postponed. And then both National League series were tied up yesterday. And they are off today, heading back to the opposite cities starting tomorrow on Friday. I can't thank everybody enough for tuning into the show. Phil Selig was a dynamite guest for us. I had so much fun talking White Sox baseball, Cuban baseball, Ottawa Senators, anything in between with him. It was so much fun. I'm very excited to cover the rest of these games between now and our next show. We should be getting pretty close, if not already, in the American League and National League Championship Series by our next show next Thursday. I'm very excited about all that. 
Of course, the NHL season is back in full force. So Frank Mueller and I are having a great time with Bar Down Talking Hockey every Wednesday at 2 p.m. That's so much fun. And I highly encourage everyone to tune in every single day that the Devils play, the New Jersey Devils. I have my pregame show as part of the Let's Go Devils podcast. And we are very excited to be bringing you a pregame every single game starting tonight with game number one for the new jersey devils as they take on the philadelphia flyers and make sure you're following me at Vinny parisi for all of that of course you will also see plenty of stuff around the barroom network and my twitter and make sure you're following at barroom network as well because tonight the chicago bears as mentioned take on the washington commanders they will be wearing for the first time ever their orange helmets to complement their orange jerseys i'm very excited about that the bears might actually be able to claim a win here tonight against the one in four commanders i'm not saying anything the bears aren't much better but they've shown a lot more promise than the commanders have and i like justin fields the way he played in the second half of last game was awesome and we saw Mooney make a big catch. The defense allowed Kirk Cousins to have that drive at the end, but uh, they were largely the better team in the second half, and that is very encouraging going forward. I want to see the players play well first and foremost in a season like this, and we'll see what happens when it comes to their record. But I'm very excited to be a part of the Chicago Bears fan base and what's going on with the team. We got a big game tonight. I'm so excited about it. I'm going to be all over Twitter.com. Make sure you're following at Vinny Parisi. And as always... Thank you for listening. Another happy landing. <laughs> <laughs>